love Baz Love Talk on Baz Rose Ivy. I'm delighted to have uh, my good friend Nicholas Davidoff back in in conversation uh, because I read this book. Uh, and today is paperback day. Right? It comes out in paperback today? I think that's true. That's the rumor on the uh, on the boulevard. Is that the is that the is that the rumor on the streets, the publishing streets? <laughs> yeah, that's what they tell me. <laughs> Nicholas, can I tell if you? ever they I, talk to me. I, I talked about this book so much I had people in Martha's Vineyard going and buying it. Like a bunch of people. Because I was so <laughs> I would sit on the porch and read this book every day. And then I, I don't know what kept me from not flinging it across the street at people, but people were like, oh, what are you reading? And then they would come on the porch and I was like, oh, this damn book right here. Ah. So people sent me pictures of them buying this book on the, on Martha's Vineyard. Just waiting to know. And my friend now we Jack. Have to hope, now we got to hope that they'll just send you, you know, porches across America. People <laughs> sitting and reading. This, this book was tough. This was tough, Nicholas. I didn't read it the last two times we talked. I, I, I hadn't read it yet. So I just finished it uh, on Martha's Vineyard uh, uh, last month. And uh, I, there was so much I didn't know. I I just didn't know so much. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of my job. Things, that's a good job. Know. And I wrote you a long email about it. I did, and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I wrote Nicholas's long email because I think people were like, I had this conversation with uh, Paul Bass about it too. I think people were like, Bass, if you don't shut up about this book, we're gonna push you down. A flight of stairs because everywhere I went I talked about it and uh and then and then I and then I slowed myself down because I I had to think you had to write this like as you were writing this Nicholas and you because you didn't really know this story until you got into this story well I think I knew the I think when you're writing a book like this you are trying to find a way to tell a specific and particular story that reflects the broader thematic story that you're trying to tell. And mm -hmm. I knew the broader thematic story from the time I was a child in New Haven. And it was, I mean, New Haven, right, is a representative city. It has so many, it's just a smaller version of so many American cities. And it has so many of the virtues and wonderful qualities and also challenges of many American cities. So if you go to Baltimore, it's just kind of in some ways, New Haven four times bigger, right? And you could say the same thing about parts of Philadelphia and on across you know, the heartland. And if you go through life and you see what you knew as a child replicated across time and some of the problems that you saw, and just as a child, you saw them and you, you, you notice them, but you're a kid. And so you don't really know what to do with that other than to say, huh, why should that be? You know, um, at a certain point, I, I felt as I want to leave New York where I lived and come back to where I grew up and really grapple with those problems. And what I'm mainly talking about is, you know, post-industrial uh, communities across the country. Mm -hmm. I, I think you did a great job of teaching us about what that migration story looked like very personally, not not because of you, but because of, of what it means to New Haven to have people come up from the South and to commit and create community here. Like you, you really laid that out for people. And uh, and I and even though we all know it, we didn't know it. You know, I was struck by how uh how personal that felt to me 
knowing that part because my 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 people are from the south too uh and it came up under the same sort of circumstances it's just not anything that we ever really talk about uh it's just a given right like because a whole bunch of people did it uh and my my folks worked at winchester then olin brass uh and then american linen which uh which the yale police department sits on um so so that weren't those the green those were the green and white vans right Yes, the green, the, the, it was a commercial laundry. And they took care of all the linens for nightclubs, bars, restaurants, and some of the hospital because the hospital had an overflow of of sheets and towels and stuff like that. And so so my parents worked there after, you know, you know, in the in the lean days when Winchester was thinning out and they they worked there. And uh so so yeah, so so it gave me a part of a story that uh uh that I was I knew, I mean, because we know the story of migration where some people went to Chicago, you know, the people who were in the in the Midwest, like in Arkansas and all those places went to Chicago and California and those places, and people in South Carolina and Georgia and you know, and all those places came uh to Connecticut and New York and uh, so, so I was struck by the teach, teachable moments of that. I also was struck by um, you went in to tell the story of, of of just about everybody. Like everybody had a backstory. Like you didn't leave any backstory out. Like everybody had some some backs. Even even the villains had backstories. You know. Well, I, I think everybody's complicated, and even for things that go wrong in life, there's always an explanation, even if it's the the, the individual's own explanation. It, it most things in human life don't come from nowhere, and so I think you know you can't really understand a city or places unless you understand all the different motivations that lead individuals to make their decisions. And if you talk to enough, in, I mean, for this book, I think I talked to over 500 people. I know I did. Yeah. And, I guess one of the reasons is that I was thinking I wanted to find a neighborhood which was a representative American neighborhood that could speak to many of the problems, not only, and again, the the virtues and the triumphs, not only of that neighborhood itself, but it could speak to many other neighborhoods that had some larger qualities in common. And I think to do that, the only responsible way to do that is for to do your best. I mean, I would have spoken to the whole city if I could have, and that, you know, that's not possible, but I spoke to as many people as I could. And so, as you know, from the time when we met, the last question was always, who do you think I should talk with? And, you know, you would say, um, because everybody, <laughs> everybody remembers life differently, especially when they encounter somebody just in a moment, there, mm -hmm. there are only a couple of specific things that'll come quickly to mind. And I remember for you, for example, it was telling about that truck that came up from the Carolinas, you know, where a farmer had come up through the night to sell fresh greens all around the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you sort through? You talk to 500 people, Nicholas. How do you sort through and how do you how do you hold yourself through all these conversations? Because some of these conversations are not going to be joyous. Some of these conversations are not going to be easy. Right. Like some of these conversations are going to be painful. How do you I don't know if you could shield yourself. How do you hold yourself through all these conversations and not be like, whew? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, I that's a, that's a really good question. And um, 
You know, I, you know who Matthew Desmond is? He, the person who wrote about eviction and then and he's written recently a book about poverty. And I remember one of the things that he was saying in, in, in his notes on the sources for his book about eviction was that in talking to people day after day whose lives are not going the way they hope they will go and who are really struggling with serious life issues, I don't think you could be a, a human being if you weren't on some level feeling down yourself about what other people are going through. And then you couldn't also be a halfway decent human being if you didn't immediately say to yourself, well, this isn't my life. This is this person's life. So who am I to feel so badly when I'm just the person who's trying to understand a series of lives of which this is one? But I think it is unmistakable that in writing about a, a group of people where there is a fair amount of struggle and pain, and not only that, but where that is a serious element of the story you're telling, if you're going to do it well, you have to remind yourself to find places of solace, because if you don't, it can get very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel as though, I mean, one of the reasons that I did this is because when I was a child growing up in New Haven, you know, some of the things that I was seeing and I didn't understand as a child, but just sensed, had a feeling for were upsetting. And it's just, you know, we're talking about structures of the country, nothing a kid could do anything about but notice. But you would notice how close some of your friends who are growing up, who with a real serious lack of opportunity, real struggle, and we're talking about issues surrounding food and clothing and things. And then right over there, you know, just a just a short walk away are children who are having a very different life experience. And to see that juxtaposition was for me always really confusing. And as a child, I always wanted to know what it meant. Like, why should this be? Why are the why is why are there these great divisions and gulfs just in life experience at such proximity? And it just felt to me as a kid um, confusing. And I think that one of the things you know photographers talk about is these great photographers are people who can see life with the clarity of a child. Because children don't have many, many, many other experiences to confuse and to explain away and so forth. They just see things with a certain kind of almost poetic purity, right? Or that's mm -hmm. how we imagine it. There's just not enough experience to confuse things. It's, a, it's an immediate perception. And that immediate perception, I mean, it first really came to me when I was playing baseball at Bowen Field. And I just remember, you know, sort of looking out through the backstop up at how close Yale University was from the baseball field we were playing on, which, you know, had a lot of glass and it was dusty and kids around me, some of them were were really were, were struggling in certain ways, even though we didn't talk about it. And when you think about things like that, you think of, as a kid, again, as I said, you're just sort of saying, hmm, you, you know, this is kind of this seems weird to me that there should be this abrupt demarcation. And why would this be? But then. You know, as you go through life, you hear many explanations and you hear lots of things. But if you go back to that pure initial feeling of surprise and confusion, that was really my guide for the entire story. Mm. I really, as kids, you know, we didn't talk about these things, but I want to know what that felt like. Now, you could have 
I mean, and coming back to New Haven from being away, and this is your hometown, this is where you're from, uh, you could you could have wrote a different story. Like you you could have just written it. I mean, you're talented, you're award winning, you're celebrated. You could have written a different story. But what was it about? I mean, I understand the piece about reckoning with your childhood and what you saw. But I mean, there's so many other stories you could have written about. What was it about? Because this is this is so layered. And I get this when I read this, when I read this book, I felt like you were telling and teaching at the same time. That's how I felt. I felt like you were teaching us something and then you were telling us something and then you were sharing something. I, that's that's my experience of the book. Like I felt like it was a master class in uh, community. It was a master class in th- rethinking and reimagining policing. Uh, it was a master class in uh, uh, how how certain communities are handled and other communities aren't handled in terms of law enforcement. I felt that very acutely, you know. Well, I think one of the things that was challenging, and maybe I I waited as long as I did in life to do this, even though I'd been thinking about it for a long time, is because I think it took a lot of experience to be able to handle a big American story that had many different features, as you say, policing, uh, prison, reentry, early childhood education, um, different forms of work, the history of a neighborhood, how neighborhoods change, different forms of immigration, and to make it all part of a story. In other words, of course, when you're a writer and you're learning about your subject, you're teaching yourself. And then you're right that there's inevitably some element that you'll be offering your reader something new. But really, a reader isn't going to your nonfiction book when there are a lot of things out there to um, chew on a stick of wood instead of having delicious, you know, delicious dessert to eat. And I guess the most difficult part are two things. One thing is of the immense amount of material that you gather, choosing what will speak to the story you want to tell, and then two, making it into a story so that it really does feel to people like they are being told a story, not Mm -hmm. that they're being given some sort of master class on something that maybe they think the writer, they think the writer thinks they should know, but nobody really wants to read out of should. They want to read out of pleasure. Reading's supposed to be a pleasure. And it, pleasure can be, you know, intriguing and interesting, but ultimately it still must be pleasure because there are a lot of books out there and a lot of really yeah. good books out there. So I don't know. I might have to push back on you on the plus. I did not find pleasure in this book. Although I but I, I understand what you mean because I love reading. But I I I I, I mean, even been... just the language, you know, the quality of language, I, I loved the quality it. of the quality I, of coming to know people and so forth. Yes. I don't mean that they're, that they're, I mean, good, sad, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know. I mean, I'm changed. It has changed. It has forever changed me. Like I, I, I know where I was different when I read this. Like I know the moment I was very different and I, I was just taken aback and I, you know, and I've had these conversations with friends who have read the book and, uh, and I'm about to engage in a conversation with somebody who's going to have a conversation with you, Ryan, who is uh, engaging you at the YDS uh, because she was with me on Martha's video when I was going on, <laughs> going on about this book. And uh, and she's reading it now. 
And uh, and she's like, oh Lord. <laughs> and she's a reverend, like she's a minister. She's like, she's like, this is a lot of story. I said, it is a lot of story. It's a lot of stories. Um, uh, it's a lot of story. And but it is, but it is teachable. Like, I feel like I was I was learning something too. And I, I don't even know if that's the side effect, but it felt like uh it felt like I, I was learning something because there was so much like I didn't even know about the predatory lending lending piece. I just thought that was awful. You know, the 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 the, the loan piece. I I've never heard of that. You know, I didn't I had no awareness of that. And then I went and looked it up and it just it just got on my <laughs> It just wore me out, and I thought, "I this is there anybody that can stop this, or not so much? I don't know what I don't know what the stop is. I just means who who protects people from these kinds of things? Like how how does this? But that's just one. It's one part of it that sort of tripped me up. The the other part was, uh, so many moving parts." so many moving parts that just went along with the story and I didn't see any intervention at any point except for the late um, attorney Pollen. Like, she was very she could see very clearly that this was an injustice and she quietly made inroads to change it and I, how did I you I would just push, I push back a tiny bit and I would say that, you know there's a there are appearances by Michael Jefferson, who is a person yes. who is pushing back, and certainly yes. Ken Rosenthal, another lawyer yes. in, in the book. He is yes. dedicating years of his life. There are all sorts of people. I mean, I feel as though one of the great things about New Haven is that there's a long history of people here who are civically oriented, who have yeah. real, real public concern, and they make it a really compelling and for a small city a chorus of very different and very um, affecting voices, right? But I think mm -hmm. one of the lessons of the country right now is that if you want real cultural change, if you want things to be better for lots of people, and that's what I mean by change, you can't do that unless major institutions participate. And it's major institutions which places that have the real, I mean, we are talking about government and we're talking about government institutions, or you're talking about large universities or you're charging large corporations. Unless you have a civic orientation for, and I mean, you would think it was inevitable that government would be civically oriented, but not always, right? I mean, everybody's making choices, right? And usually making people making choices um, from their perceived self-interest. So unless you have a sense of enlightened self-interest from big institutions, then it's hard, no matter how many well-intended, good-hearted people you have to affect, you know, signal changes. Mm. That's one so, of the, I ahead. mean, for me, that was one of the most substantive things I learned. You can have all the goodwill in the world. I mean, Yale University is a really good example. There are untold generations of people at Yale University, professors, administrators, students, who have been open-hearted people who've come to New Haven, who've taken on New Haven uh, in the small way that an individual can and tried to be a good neighbor and a good citizen of the city and to 
um, understand elements of the city, even as though they're going about their own business, going beyond themselves and so forth. And New Haven also, it's like Minneapolis is a city where per capita, there are more theaters than any city in the country. New Haven's always kind of- Yeah, and New Haven unofficially has always been sort of noted as the place with more nonprofits per capita. There are all kinds of small scale goodwill here. But unless you have major institutions who are working alongside all these well-intended people, there can be a real division between individual or small group of people effort and larger effort. And I think if you really ask me why I did this, it's because I never was clear that what I was seeing as a kid was acknowledged as a problem, that there were Mm. too many people you know, that there were all across this country, there were people living in proximity, some of whom had a lot and for whom, and everybody's just busy with their lives, right? So this isn't necessary. I don't mean this in terms of aspersion or blame. I just mean that there's some people who have a lot and then just right across that glass window or right across that invisible railroad track are people who are really struggling. And that the reason they're really struggling, it isn't their fault. The reason they're struggling is because they arrived at a place with a given understanding of how an economic model worked and the economic model changed. And when you don't have a lot, it's hard to shift yourself and change along with it. And so I just wondered, ultimately, what it came down to is generations beginning early in the 19th century came from Europe and then eventually from South Carolina, North Carolina, other places like that, to the city because there were pretty well-paying jobs for undereducated, underskilled people who wanted to become skilled, who wanted to educate their kids, and who could eventually, at these jobs, buy a first house, buy a second house, get a car, get a um, get a bank account that eventually became tuition for their kids. So all around New Haven are people for whom this model worked. But once the model began to, with the decline of industry, once the model began not to exist anymore, then what? And I guess that was what I felt was a start was just to acknowledge that there are all sorts of costs when something that seems promised doesn't then exist. Mm -hmm. And some individuals, of course, can pivot, but it takes a lot of personal agility and a lot of personal resources when what seems like a norm is gone. It takes an exception to do it. I mean, there's a point of view in America where everybody can sort of fix everything if they just try hard enough. But, you know, there's that old line, which we've heard many, many times, but, you know, it's hard to pull yourself up from your bootstraps when you don't have any boots. So I think that this is just, this is just, you know, these are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. But and think about those things, nobody wants to hear, you know, people just go on and on about the problems. People want to hear actually with some humanity how those problems express themselves and also the beautiful things about people, even when even when people are struggling, you know, people are much more than struggle and neighborhoods are much more than one way. And so, so and 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 I I would say that when you lay over race on top of this story, right? Because I don't know if this would be the same kind of story with white people. I mean, if if if, if the players were all white people, uh, uh, how how do you how do you reconcile that component to it? Like, how do you 
how do you wade through those waters of race, racism, telling the story? I think, well, when you're talking about a segregated neighborhood where people are struggling, there are explanations for it. It isn't just, it, it, it didn't just happen, right? And so you would want to know how it happened and why it happened and how you can overcome these issues. And I guess this is just my own opinion, but race layered with class is the most difficult American problem still. And that's not to say that there aren't many, many other American problems and that there aren't many other different kinds of communities with their own very real struggles. And everybody's struggles deserve to be recognized and to be understood and so forth. But there's a particular kind of struggle I think that we're talking about that is especially hard and especially enduring. And those are struggles that can't be understood as most significant struggles can't be understood unless there's history. So that's why in the book, there's history at the beginning. I tried mm -hmm. as well as I could to tell a tiny history of the country through the prism of one neighborhood. And that's why it goes back. And that's a lot. I mean, people probably hear that and they think, oh no, celery and carrots, you know? <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you know, there are lots of ways to tell things. And I really did hope that in writing this, that there would be a sense of people being interested and it would arouse curiosity and, and, and engagement that people would wonder suddenly now that they were seeing that all over New Haven, the second most common license plate after Connecticut license plates would be South Carolina license plates. Why should that be? And it would open up a city and it would make a city feel more human and closer to you than simply a place where you lived and there are other people who are vaguely over there and over there and over there. It would make you feel more a part of things, no matter who you were. Mm, that's, that, I, that, that's, that's an interesting thought. I, I, I think the people that I've talked to, I think uh, the thing that they were most struck by, at least in all the conversations that I've had, uh, people were struck by just the level of injustice and, uh, and and it's such a contained injustice. Like it was just happening in real time in this community, and 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 no one seemed to could figure out. I I think I think what I was struck by is the level of fear during that particular time that people had about coming forward. I, I was struck by that. I was also struck by. Uh, I'm also struck by unsolved cases and how prevalent that is and what what happens to unsolved cases you know like what happens to those like what happens to the, the people who want to know what happened to their loved ones you know like yeah. what happened I to think them? for me everything in specific speaks to something bigger and more general so mm -hmm. unsolved cases it speaks to me first and foremost to trust like the way cases get solved is policing is a responsive business. People can't people can't solve cases as police. I mean, for all the things that you see on Perry Mason or whatever all these shows are, you know, where there's a sudden <laughs> Did line. Did you say of Perry Mason? <laughs> well, didn't it just get revived or something? I, you know, I grew up without a TV, so I don't know about the way back. Maybe that's the wrong guy. Maybe it was Mason Perry. <laughs> no, I mean. You know, you know that that sort of model where the ingenious Sherlock Holmes like person can just solve every case because that 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 
that detective is just, you know, such superlative skills. Really, the way cases get solved is Mm -hmm. police respond and they have sources of information and the community comes together and helps people solve something that is a source of great pain for lots of people. So, you know, I feel as though when that doesn't happen, largely it's an issue of trust. Nobody's going to trust police if police haven't become a part of the community themselves. In different Mm. policing, um, in New Haven, different policing generations have been better about it than some others. And there have been incredibly progressive administrations in policing. And there have been some that have been, you know, less so. And um, but that's how I think about solves. I think about solves as sort of representative of police and community. And I also think, um, you know, people say, well, if 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 there's a high rate of violent crime, what do you, what needs to happen with policing to make it go down? But I always see it as a sort of a binary or dual problem. I see policing as a response to something that has happened. And maybe in some cases, the ability to have enough on the street information so things can be anticipated and cut off. But more usually, you never see a whole lot of violent crime in places where people are feeling fulfilled, where they feel there's a decent amount of opportunity, where they feel as though um, it's just neighborhoods where people aren't struggling, usually aren't neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence. I mean, name one. You can't. And so that to me is, I mean, the great to me, the greatest policing of all is opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you know, the book has been out for quite some time now. Lots of people have read it and the paperback is coming out. What 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 do you want people to know about this book, Nicholas? Like what do you what do you want people to when they read this book, when they sit, when they choose this book, what what are you hoping for them? Well, I guess it's just some of the things that you and I have just been discussing. I hope it deepens their sense of cities and how they work. And also it gives a sense. I mean, I feel as though the people who are written about in the book are neighbors and they're neighbors of one another in the book. But they really, I hope, are sort of representative American neighbors, that these are people who, you know, just a little better through a book. And just as you get through your neighbors, you get to know other people's experiences and the world broadens and the world deepens. I hope that that that's what happens too. And um, I suppose there are all sorts of, you know, things in terms of personal vanity that you would hope. In other words, you would hope that people would enjoy the story that you, that you wrote the story well enough and carefully enough so that, um, you know, that, 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 that uh, people would get, if not joy, a certain kind of pleasure from something that they care about. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I will tell you, I live next door to the uh, to the woman who was an extreme couponer. <laughs> I love like, that. I, I, I live next door to her. And I would have not put two and two together had I not read the book. Like I was like, oh, I live next door to this lady. <laughs> See, that's the thing about neighborhoods and the thing about life is that it's easy enough to, you know, you know, you, somebody goes on Wikipedia and they read about a state or a neighborhood or a city or something. They get all the demographics and, you know, the, the brief thumbnail descriptions of a place. But places are really made up by individuals and the individuals who come together and are their own people, too. And um, 
just as you know, you on your porch is one kind of person, and the guy driving by selling you, you know, things that he grew on his farm, and he drove up through the drove up through the night, and the way he sells them, and then the way you cook them, and the way they taste, and who you invite over to have them, and just all the stories, good and bad. That's 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 neighborhood, and that's, I mean. You know, what do we all remember through life? We remember, you know, sort of our surroundings as we grew up. We remember, you know, what really happened on the first day of school. You know, you start out with your <laughs> sidewalk and it's just you're a little kid and you've got the sidewalk in front of your house and that delimits the whole world. Right. And, you know, everything about every crack and, you know, you know, the the meridian going out to the street and, you know, and then as you get older, the sidewalk just lengthens and lengthens and there are more and more things, you know, you know why that lady dropped her shopping bag. The first time I ever saw somebody drop their shopping bag and everything in that shopping bag, just all over the street and the expression on that old lady's face who was walking by me and I'm a little kid. And I've just, I don't know why this is coming to mind now, but it was a really profound experience. Just the way she looked as all her eggs smashed. I mean, she must have been late into her 80s. And I'd seen disappointment plenty. I mean, anybody who grows up with a single mom has seen plenty of, you know, challenges. But seeing that lady's face when she dropped her shopping bag, and there was nothing a little kid could do to help because everything was broken. There was milk and there were eggs and everything was broken. And it was all over and the shopping bag, you know, the brown bottom went out. And I was just, you didn't even have to talk to her and you could see just how much more it cost her than it would cost most people. Because part of it was the walk and she wanted, I now know, you know, having lived a little more life, that it was when you are as elderly as she appeared to be, and you are as thin, as frail as she appeared to be. And I know how far away the stores were from my, you know, my house then. I know what it takes to still have your own volition and your own independence and agency, you know, to be a person who still goes shopping for yourself. And I just remember, you know how much more would have gone into it than just somebody going and picking up some eggs. And so I think that's neighborhood too. I like it. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure talking to you and I'm going to meet you for coffee in a little bit. We're going to have more conversation. So uh, I would imagine you are a good observer of the world. What are you working on now? (laughs) I'm actually writing a book about an observer of the world. The per- person, no, it's true. That's the person people, many people think is the greatest American photographer there ever was. And maybe it's a guy named Robert Frank, who in the 1950s took a series of photographs that are called the Americans. And in the 1950s, this was still a time when public photography, in other words, photography meant for mass distribution, were generally pictures of people who are either very famous or celebrated. Celebrity was a new concept then, or people who are in the news big in the news. It wasn't just what he would have called ordinary people. And he spent years driving around the entire country, taking 27,000 photographs of what he called ordinary Americans. And then the book became 83 pictures um, of the 27,000. It's called The Americans. And it is a fantastic book. But the story of the journey and then what he and his life and what that book meant and then what he did with all the rest of his life. I mean, he's a great American artist and it is a, he's like the artist's artist and it is the story of him. And in certain ways you can imagine how somebody who worked on a project as I just did would feel a certain kind of, you know, you would, I would, I mean, I met him, I knew him for the last 10 years of his life and he died in well into his nineties. So you could imagine how somebody who had had that experience was a wonderful person to talk with as I was working on this project, but also 
how that particular experience and the ability to see with a camera lens deep into the lives of other people and just in these fleeting moments create visual short stories. It's really an incredible and to me, significant and, you know, thrilling thing to do. And not just me. I mean, you talk to Bruce Springsteen or you talk to, um, I, I, I just, you can't imagine the number of artists who keep copies of that book very close at hand when they are working on their own art. I mean, when Bruce Springsteen wrote Nebraska, for example, he had a copy of that book in every room of his house because that book was, it was, you know, it was his, you know, source stone. It was the, the locus of inspiration. And um, you can imagine that somebody who could do something like that would be a pretty complicated and ambivalent and, you know, fascinating character themselves. So it's going to be a little book about him. Oh, I can't wait. Well, hopefully it won't come out until I finish all the other Nicholas Dowdoff books. <laughs> that I, That's like that a I piano have, on the back. That I, that I have stacked in little places. Like, okay, I got I got through this one. I'm going to get through the other one. So so thank you for your time this morning. And oh, this is a paperback. Nice Everybody, go and find it at your uh, at your local books booksellers. Uh, I go to Possible Futures and you can too. And and uh, Lauren over there will order it if it's not sitting in the stores. But this is over there too, and hard hard copy. Um, but it's it's well worth your read. Like it is, it's challenging and it's a ride, but it is quite illuminating. So thank you, Nicholas. It's good talking to you. It's always good to talk with you, Babs. Have a beautiful day. I'll see you in a little bit for coffee. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you, Harry Jones. I'll see y'all tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for all the best. I hope everybody is well. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, y'all behave yourselves. 50 years of hip hop. It is. Hi, this is Babs Dolls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at New Haven Independent. Yes, keep it on Keep it